Bluebird backcountry is a blend of backcountry skiing and, and all the amenities of a resort and all the benefits of having a guide service nearby. Right. So my thought is that ski areas are trying to figure out what to do with these uphillers instead of saying, how do we create a great experience for people who are interested in this subsport. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 85. We can all feel it coming. This winter, it's going to be a weird one. But there are some certainties. Sales of human-powered equipment, whether that be bikes over the summer or uphill skiing and riding equipment last spring and this fall, have been going gangbusters to the point of selling out. The independence offered by these pursuits provides a level of insurance against our ongoing societal pandemic challenges for those of us with the outdoor itch but we can also see the side effects coming. Popular trailheads and backcountry zones will be jammed. Noobs will be acting like noobs. Risks will be magnified. Response teams will be stretched. And ski resorts will be, well, we're not exactly sure yet. Against that backdrop, Eric Lambert and his business partner Jeff Woodward are heading into year two of their Bluebird backcountry operation, which ran a pilot season just before COVID clobbered us, making their offering even more crucial than they could have imagined. Bluebird is a bare-bones ski area with a big mountain but no lifts that aims to bridge the gap between resort skiing and backcountry skiing in a welcoming, educational, and risk-mitigated setting. Yeah, but why would I pay to go backcountry skiing, said random, confident internet guy. Well, Eric and I will dig a pit through the layers of our current backcountry skiing moment, where their fledgling ski area fits in it, and how the broader ski business should or could think about the uphill boom. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Wintry Mixcast for my strange front-range foothill low-country skiing pursuits, episode announcements, questionable parenting, and COVID ski season analysis slash jokes. There's also a podcast voicemail and text line, 802-560-5003. Call it and share your truth or ask a question. My email is alex at wintrymixcast.com if you want to say hello. Five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts mean I will owe you a beer in the wild. Come on, show me that you care. Past episode callouts include 80 about Ski Town Crime, 78 about Interstate 70, 75 live from Powder 7 Ski Shop in Golden, and a deep track is number 34 from Vermont's Mount Escutney. The coming discussion was recorded not via the internet, but socially distanced in my garage. You might hear a passing car or two, but at least it doesn't sound like a Zoom call. Stand by for the goods. This episode of Wintry Mix is supported by the Ten Barrel Brewing Company and Bojo's Colorado Style Pizza. Commerce is a little funky right now, but you can still buy beer. Grab some Ten Barrel, the new Nature Calls IPA perhaps, or the soon-to-drop Pray for Snow Winter Seasonal. 
A portion of proceeds support the Conservation Alliance and protect our winters. Also, the pubs are open for all sorts of to-go eats and dine-in options, depending on local regulations. Help keep the people employed. They're rocking in Boise, Denver, Bend, Portland, and San Diego. And until then, find 10 Barrel in a refrigerated section near you. Or find me and I'll give you one in the wild. Just stay six feet away from me. And it's Bojo's time, so let's hear from Cody Bear. Uh, so it was started in a small little place in Idaho Springs across the street from where it is now. We're gonna celebrate our 47 year anniversary um, my dad bought it from a couple named Bo and Joanne, and then had it for less than a year. And he used to work there, sleep there, eat pizza every day, and he used to actually go up to Loveland Ski Area and hand out coupons up there. Come see us at Bojo's. You might see our dad Chip, you might not, but you'll definitely see some of his goats. And no, no, they're not live goats. They're pictures of goats. Chip Bear, founder of Bojo's, likes to take pictures of goats from Mount Evans, and the pictures end up on the wall. Visit them in Idaho Springs, Arvada, Evergreen, Fort Collins, Longmont, and Steamboat. Was there a moment, maybe it was in March or April or May, when you and Jeff, the rest of your team, kind of realized, oh my God, global pandemic. This is bad now, but this might be helpful. <laughs> uh, there were a series of moments, right? You know, we had a four or we had, we were supposed to have a 15 day test season. We ended up having a 14 day test season because we shut down with the governor's order mandating downhill ski areas close. And we weren't quite sure do we fall under this or not, but it was the right thing to do. And we also were doing our best to, to be a ski area more than anything else. So, um, it was at, you know, at that moment and at that moment we realized like, Oh geez, this, this thing is real. Uh, it wasn't very long after that, that we saw people in, in droves, like, flooding trailheads um and taking their inbounds uh reality into the out of bounds and causing some troubles so you know our first concern actually was that the backcountry that spring was going to be in, in a dangerous place um and people were putting themselves and others at risk and we knew at that point that our model could be helpful for for people who are looking for that alternative and looking for a safer place to go, looking for a place that bridges the inbounds and the out-of-bounds. And a safer place to go. Eric Lambert, quick intro yourself and what is Bluebird the safer place to go? Yeah, my name's Eric Lambert. I'm a co-founder of Bluebird Backcountry. I've spent my whole life skiing. My dad kind of pushed me around the woods when I was super young. And then, uh, you know, started making my way out west. I grew up on the East Coast. And then in college, started getting into backcountry, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I lived in Jackson for a while and really kind of developed my skills and was mentored there. 
Um, I've been in the outdoor industry for about 15 years. I've been in on the media side with Backcountry Magazine, Alpinist Magazine. I was at the American Alpine Club for five years running marketing there. And now I do brand strategy. Um, I have a little marketing agency that helps outdoor brands. So it's been kind of fun because at the uh, doing the brand strategy, that's exactly what is the most fun part of building something new that is an entirely new kind of concept. So uh, I get to t- apply all those skills I've built around content and communication and marketing and brand and like be able to find a way to um, help people see the world a little differently and live into kind of a new reality around skiing. So, And that's what Bluebird Backcountry is bringing to the market, a different way to ski kind of halfway between ski resorts proper and wild backcountry, correct? Yeah, yeah. So we started working on Bluebird about uh, four years ago. And the, you know, I could talk to you about the origin story or whatever. But the the reality is that, like, the very beginning of this was, shouldn't we just come up with a place that's kind of like inbounds, but doesn't have chairlifts? And that would solve this problem of all the barriers to entry being high around backcountry skiing. It would make life so much easier for someone who doesn't know where to start to you, be able to start there. Do you remember that first conversation? Oh, yeah. What, yeah. Was, where and when? Yeah. So uh, Jeff had taken his brother backcountry skiing in Crested Butte for Christmas. His brother had never been, had an amazing day, and was just so curious, like, wait, why doesn't everyone do this? Um, but he never would have tried it if Jeff hadn't introduced him to it. So Jeff was like, man, there's got to be a better way. Brought me and some other folks in uh, to kind of work through the concept. But yeah, he first told me about it at Mountain Sun in Boulder. And we were just having dinner over a burger and a beer. And um, when he first like hinted at what he wanted to do, I thought he was talking about like, maybe doing a Nordic Center or something like that. And when he started explaining it to me over a beer, I was like, he basically was like, is this a dumb idea? Is anyone already doing this? Is anyone working on this? I'm like, I have no idea, but it's definitely not a dumb idea. It probably started fairly resort adjacent, sort of like, let's partner with a ski area to get some terrain and do a thing. Or was it always kind of the standalone idea? Um, yeah. So we had no idea where to start. Uh, the first thing that we thought of was how do we use a zone of an existing ski area just like you're saying like whether it's already cut runs or whatever and the more we learn the more we realize like oh you know a lot of ski areas have a an inbounds boundary like the boundary that all of us know when we're skiing around like don't duck the rope and then they have a permit boundary, which often is larger, right? Like the Forest Service has granted them a long-term permit. Uh, it allows them to expand over time. They need to make a case for need uh, in order to expand. But generally, there's like zones in the National Forest, if it's on national for, you know, U.S. Forest Service property, uh, where there is a permit but not an uh, inbounds area. So we're like, huh, maybe we could explore something like that. And we tried to, you know, we were just a couple guys with an idea and we were trying to talk to these 
you know, mega corporations about using zones in their permit. Did you get off first base with anybody? I mean, so at the very beginning, not really, but we did have, we just sent out some cold emails and we actually did start talking to Copper Mountain at the very beginning. And then the, uh, that petered out, but Winter Park randomly reached out to us when we had decided like the idea was solid enough that we wanted to test it on snow. And so we had been working on a temporary special use permit to do just a hundred users over the winter, which we did over two weekends at Mosquito Pass um, near Leadville, kind of between Leadville and Fairplay. And uh, around that time that we were working on that permit, Winter Park's like, hey, we'll, we'll do something with you too. And we started exploring it with them, had a great partnership with Winter Park. We just did one weekend, but they let us take over a, a portion of the resort and run our programming there after the north side had closed down while Mary Jane was still open. We got to use that area and they supported us with ski patrol and logistics and all sorts of stuff. They're great. Um, and that really helped us kind of start getting off the ground. But ultimately, you know, if you're a ski area, are you going to let a couple of random guys who've never run a ski area before, like <laughs> operate on your forest service permit, um, when you have all sorts of in-house capability, not so much. And that's totally reasonable. And we, you guys just needed a place to practice. Yeah, we need exactly. And they provided it and it was, it was great. And it also forced us to figure this out on our own. It's basically like, all right, either we got to do this ourselves um, or we don't do it. And through that process, even though, you know, land is the crux of this business, through this process, like we have learned so much and we've developed so much understanding of, of not only how ski areas work, but uh, how to do it our own unique way and to find um, a, a new approach to uh, to skiing in general. And like, we're learning from all sorts of mentors, advisors, experts who are in the industry, but we also kind of bring our own fresh perspective to it. And we're going to talk a lot about year two, which you've kind of launched with much fanfare in the last few weeks. Um, but first year one. So last year, the COVID year was shut down by, by one day on your schedule. So you only lost whatever percent that is 14 instead of 15 days or whatever it was. Tell me about you know, what was the product in year one? What did you learn the most heading into year two? Yeah. So we leased 1500 acres of land on a private ranch and we ran, uh, honestly like an actual skier that had a boundary. It had professional ski patrol there and we didn't have any chairlifts. And that was really the only difference between what you would find at a kind of small mom and pop ski area and what you'd find at Bluebird Backcountry. So you could drive up, park right next to the lodge, walk in, get your ticket, get rentals, take a lesson. And then we had a check-in gate where you would go in, we'd make sure you had Beacon Shovel Probe and there'd be someone there to sign you into the mountain. And then there were marked skin tracks. There's a trail map. We had this backcountry passport program where people could explore the mountain and get stamps around the mountain and then get a free beer if they filled it out. Um, and the whole idea was that let's create 
an environment that's more comfortable. Let's create an environment where there are professionals who are evaluating the avalanche terrain, opening and closing stuff as necessary. And where you can learn and grow and not only like develop skills, but then practice those skills so that you're more prepared to truly go out of bounds. And in fact, about 40% of our guests had never been backcountry skiing before. What, what did they have to have? So basically just BSP, Beacon, Shovel, Probe. If they didn't have one, they were going to rent one. That was kind of the only requirement. It's the only requirement. We are, you know, it's really important to us that we instill good habits in people. If, if someone had never been backcountry skiing before, we highly encourage them to take a lesson. And we had only one type of lesson last year, and that was intro to backcountry. And, you know, that stressed me out, actually, because the long-term vision of Bluebird is that we're an educational center. So no matter what level of AVI education you have, no matter what experience level in the backcountry you have, there should be some, something for you to learn and to grow with um, at Bluebird. And so last year was really focused on introducing people to the backcountry. That's what our courses were about. We did have some more advanced clinics that we ran as well. Um, and we had a beacon park there and all that. Um, but this year we're really introducing a whole series of education, uh, everything from area courses, um, rec one, rec two, and the Abbey rescue. But also the real gap that we see are these folks who have either not taken an AVI course yet and who maybe aren't ready to make that commitment financially or from a time perspective, or they're just not sure that they like backcountry skiing enough to like go for it. Um, and then the people who have taken an AVI course, but who kind of fall off along the way where maybe they took one and then went on a hut trip, but then they don't have a mentor to really help them practice those skills or learn how to like use those skills in the true backcountry. Yeah, staying sharp is a challenge for everybody probably. That's right. And so, you know, uh, like myself included, I took an AVI course in 2006 and I haven't taken one since, right? Like I'm building Bluebird for someone like me who uh, has a lot of experience but should be doing more continual learning. And we're building it for people who are resort skiers who have a curiosity don't know where to begin and we make the process easier for them, right? Like we put the rentals on site. We create an environment that's more like what they're used to. We help them work through those stages of not knowing how to put on skins into like not knowing how to move uphill efficiently into like not knowing how to transition uh, at all, let alone transition in a way that is, is, quick and efficient. So um, we also are providing a place for people to learn to ski off piste. A lot of our guests just haven't had that experience. They're used to skiing groomers. They're coming to learn something new. And what they think they might want to learn is about their equipment or their beacon, or they might want to learn about how to travel uphill. But in many cases, they also have a long way to go with uh, developing those downhill, um, techniques as well. And we're not offering like downhill classes, but Bluebird's such a great place to ski variable terrain, do it in a more comfortable 
environment um, without a bunch of other skiers there where it's not tracked out or it's not bumped out. And you can like get more of that time behind the wheel. So year one, help me with the checklist. Um, you had a plowed parking lot, correct? Yeah. <laughs> you had heat in the base lodge. Yep. You had some sort of restroom facilities, uh, port johns of some sort. We did. But you, you had them in more than one location, right? We did. So, so yeah. So at the base, we had your normal porta potties. And then there's a 30 or 40 minute skin up to what we called the perch. And the perch was basically a, a little warming hut up there and high camp. Yeah. Yeah. High camp. And like the best skiing most days was above the perch. Mm -hmm. uh, really great Aspen glades and open areas up there with more snow. And, and at the perch though, the perch was more of a social scene. There was a bathroom there as well, which was really just a shelter that had a groover in it. Food and water, both locations. Yeah, we had uh, we had water for everybody, of course, and then we had limited food options. We'll have more this year. But. You promoted the bacon. Everybody yeah. saw the bacon. People loved the bacon. I mean, do you know the story of the bacon? I just know that it was a story. Okay. So when we were doing our prototypes, even before this past test season, we had a long two-mile skin in that was flat before you could even start going uphill, just that's where we could get a permit. And people who are new to backcountry skiing found this incredibly challenging, right? Like, especially split boarders have never been on skis, they're trying to balance. And we've got the trailhead at 11,000 feet, so they're like huffing. And people were like, that was so fun, except for the way in and the way out because they had to skim back out in part yeah, two access and so we're like all right well there's nothing we can do we can't move the trailhead we can't change locations but mentally we can shift people's perspectives so we uh my co-founder jeff his wife dressed up in a hula skirt got a coleman grill and just made bacon halfway out the skin track and let's just say that it it was a total surprise and people all they talked about at the end of the day was how awesome the bacon station was and nobody complained about the death march skin track so uh we've decided to keep bacon as part of our uh cultural reality at bluebird just to kind of honor the fact that our whole intention is to make this welcoming friendly and just like to surprise and delight our guests as best we can um and, and to make the backcountry experience less um, intense and more more fun. Just lightens the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. So bacon, one thing learned from, actually, that was prior to year one. Uh, but the year one events, 14 days actually operating on a new piece of land. Um, what did you learn in year one that you're kind of most excited about for year two? Yeah. So our big goals were to test demand like are people going to come uh to test the location like is this a place people are willing to drive to and do they like it like do they like the terrain um and can we provide an amazing experience and that's partly why we had a bacon station <laughs> so uh the demand was great we had really limited time to market this thing um and we saw about 1100 paying guests over 14 days and then the satisfaction was through the roof. Like we had 
a 9.4 out of 10 satisfaction rating from 438 surveys we've got back. Uh, and then the location, people love the terrain and just wanted more snow. So that's why we've moved up the road. Um, I would say the big learning is like from the marketing guy's perspective, at least, is that we had such a broad spectrum of guests, like age, um, experience level with backcountry, experience level skiing. We even had one snowboarder who had never been skiing or snowboarding before and chose Bluebird Backcountry to start his journey. First timer. First timer, uh, all the way up to like super experienced. And then as far as people's uh, avalanche education level, that was really different and, and their ability to ski downhill, like I was saying before. So you mentioned the geography, um, prior location, a little bit closer to Kremlin, a little bit further, I guess it's kind of Southeast on 40, um, a little bit further from Rabbit Ears Pass. Now you're closer to Rabbit Ears Pass, still kind of at that skiing in the nine to 10,000 foot range, which is probably good for the uphill component with elevation and, and keeping avalanche danger to a minimum. Um, the new location, what are you excited about with the kind of bare peak spot? Uh, a little further from Denver, but I guess it seems like that distance isn't that big of a hurdle for you. Yeah. So, you know, realistically, front rangers were driving about two and a half hours to our old location. This will be another 15 minutes uh, up 40, and then you loop around onto Highway 14 um, just for a mile or two. The, the new mountain is bigger. Uh, it's not as prominent, right? Like Whiteley Peak that we were on last year you come down off rabbit ears and it's explosive. Like bear mountain is not like that, but it's going to have way better skiing. Um, Whiteley was either super mellow. Um, there's a lot of good, like kind of blue terrain and then there's like cliffs, but bear mountain is going to have a wider variety. So for people who are just learning, there's going to be more like green type meadows and that sort of thing. And, and glades that are open there's also going to be quite a bit more steeps. So that stuff in the kind of 40 degree range, it won't always be open, but it's going to be there. And we have three times the amount of terrain. Last year, we had about 400 acres that was inbounds, and this year we'll have about 1,200. We also have north and east facing aspects this year primarily, whereas last year was west. And so we'll be able to hold snow better, the quality of the snow. That north won't turn to cross nearly as yeah, often. exactly. Uh, specifically the, the guest mix, is it predominantly front range? Is there a huge chunk of just steam boaters? Where are people coming from for the most part? Yeah. Uh, two thirds of our guests were coming from the front range and then another 25% or so coming from the mountains generally. Summit County and route County and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And then about 10% coming from out of state. So, you know, some of that was coming down from Cheyenne and Laramie, but a lot of it was people who just saw an article and were on a trip to Steamboat anyway and popped over or they're on a road trip and they're like, oh, I got to hit that. So, uh, yeah, we're hoping to see people from all over come through again. And we even had someone uh, from Spain who was planning to come. And, like, it's been, it's been wild to see, like, how far people are excited to travel from. 
So two years in a row, uh, you found yourself in that area between rabbit ears and Kremlin. Um, any other areas that kind of almost ended up being the place? Um, it seems like this is obviously a land access is one of the biggest hurdles. So once you have success there, you're kind of going to stick with it. But, but any other places that almost happened? Yeah, I mean, we ran a systematic process. So even when we realized like this might be tough with partnering with a ski area, we still were talking with a bunch of ski areas. And like you've like you said earlier, we needed a place to get this off the ground. Um, so we were talking with existing ski areas. We were talking with the Forest Service just to see what was possible. We were running a systematic process on private parcels and this parcel like was a little outside of our radar. Like we were looking more like in a two hour from, from Denver range. And so we didn't even, we didn't even like have this in mind at first. And then we were starting to get into late summer. We're like, we need, we need somewhere to go. And one of our volunteers was like, Hey, like I, I have a relative who who has some mountain property and we ended up uh, going out and checking it out and being very excited. There were a couple other private land options that we considered, um, but nothing that had what this ranch has. Your access from 40 is amazing. I mean, even though it may be a certain amount of time from Denver, the fact that you're not navigating a long, windy, deep canyon sort of access road is probably invaluable. Yeah, and it's going to get slightly more complex this year just because to get to that north and east facing terrain, we will have about two miles of road that we need to maintain. Yeah. So that's going to be a challenge for us. It's a new. It was coming no matter yeah. what. If you were going to grow this thing, eventually <laughs> you're going to have to deal with the road maintenance. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, it's, uh, there's a cost to improve the road and then there's a cost to maintain the road. And those costs are manageable as long as we have good visitation and, and we're seeing some good demand already for, for coming back this year. As you mentioned, demand, um, demand for, Backcountry experiences, demand for non-resort skiing uh, spiked in March. We saw what happened with bicycles over the summertime. Human-powered anything is doing extremely well and is likely to sell out on the sales side, and then people are going to want to use it. Um, a good percentage of those people are coming to a Bluebird backcountry experience now that it exists, thanks to you and Jeff and your team. But I want to get your thoughts on the resort side. Um, a lot of your user type are also the resort uphiller type. There's a lot of crossover, a lot of overlap there. Um, people keep asking me, what are resorts going to do with uphillers this year? My response is they're going to monetize it. They're going to figure it out because the demand is going to force them to do it. I just, before you showed up, a whitefish announced their policies. Actually, let me read them to you and we'll, get, we'll have you respond to what whitefish just announced, which I think is going to be coming to a lot of places. Let's see here. This was announced 15 minutes ago. You can do a season-long uphill ticket for 100 bucks. You can do $12 a day. You have to wear a 4x6 card that must be visible. Um, and that's in order to do this during their operating season. If you have a downhill season pass, you don't need to pay the 100 You just get the card. So that's what Whitefish is doing. Um, just announced this year, which is a change from past years. 
uh, resorts are going to see this demand too. Uh, what do you anticipate um, in that space? And do you have any uh, things you learned in year one that might be helpful for them to hear? <laughs> well, I think the number one thing that the resorts are doing wrong about this is that, like you just said, they're trying to monetize uphillers instead of focus on how do we create a quality experience for people who are interested in backcountry skiing. Um, uphilling is not backcountry skiing. Bluebird backcountry is a blend of backcountry skiing and, and all the amenities of a resort and all the benefits of having a guide service nearby, right? So my thought is that ski areas are trying to figure out what to do with these uphillers instead of saying, how do we create a great experience for people who are interested in this subsport? Have you seen any specifically doing it well as far as you know managing the demand, uh, maybe monetizing it somehow, but having that kind of be a backseat to the experience? I mean, what should they do? Should they think of them as an operational challenge um, or should they think of them as an economic opportunity? Um, they're going to be arriving one way or another. And frankly, the ski resort uphilling, uphilling activity is a good way for people to learn a little bit in a controlled environment, that same safety component, as long as they stay out of the way of operations. There's a lot of moving parts here. The demand is coming. I don't have a solution other than I think the resorts will get serious about it just because the demand will force them to. Yeah. And just to back up a minute, what I would say is that uphilling at a resort is just uh, a subpar way to learn how to backcountry ski and to get familiar with your equipment. It is not an ideal scenario, right? Like right. you've got a crowd, you've got all the crowds at the base. Um, you've, you don't have like a pure wilderness experience. Like you might want you, have these icy groomers you're trying to navigate up like there are these cut runs and noises and all the other ex things you can expect from a crowded resort and then when you come down like you're you're not skiing fresh pow probably you're skiing a groomer or something and so that's great if you're just there for the fitness uh and you don't care about the you know the views or the experience or anything like that but if you want more of a backcountry experience, like go somewhere like Bluebird, where we're literally designing the whole place so that you have a backcountry feel while also having the benefits that are necessary for, um, for safer travel, et cetera. And that is more actually like the backcountry um, without having to be in the backcountry itself. So I would just say that the uphilling experience, generally, I've always found subpar. So if I were a resort, I would try to think about my customer segments. And if they're actually getting serious about a customer segment, like give them something better than subpar. So let's play that out for a second. I mean, maybe there's a, a world in which, you know, a Breckenridge, for example, sprawled out across all these different peaks in the 10-mile range. And... Do they take a half a pod, three trails, close them to the downhill public, make them uphill only? I don't know. I'm just looking at the smile on your face. Uh, I don't know uh, what it means. Um, but I'm sitting here thinking about it from a perspective of 
I don't like to drive far for my skiing. That's why I do my little foothill stuff. Um, people who live in Summit would love to maybe go to Bluebird for that experience, but maybe they need they want to get some turns in or a run in before work at 1030 in the morning. And, you know, that that audience, which I think is growing. And so just proximity forces people to what's close to them, whether that's Berthoud or Loveland or the resorts. I don't know the solution to all this. I just see it all happening. Yeah, the reason the reason I'm smiling <laughs> is that Breckenridge is my prime example, right? Like there when they decided to open Peak 6, there was an uproar from the backcountry community. There was a big fight, and then Breckenridge threw, you know, Vail threw some elbows and they opened Peak 6. Now, like I I've skied Peak 6. Peak 6 has this glorious kind of perfectly angled terrain all the way down like it's not crazy steep but it's just fun it's just like a fun angle and they screwed the whole thing up like man the glades in there if they had just thinned everything out and not cut runs it would be just so glorious it would be unlike anything it would be unique else skiing. it would be unique and it would be yeah it'd be unlike anything else uh around that's in bounds and i've just always found that to be just um, boneheaded, honestly. Like, man, you have this glorious space. You already have like a hundred other runs that are cut. Why not create something different and visionary? And so totally, if you're listening, Vale, like why don't you go do that? Why don't you turn off the lifts on peak six, thin out those glades and let people just have a crazy fun backcountry experience um, over there? Like, I think this is the year to for, for somebody to start thinking further outside the box, whether that's opening it to their downhill public at 11 a.m. And prior to that, these three runs are where you send all the uphillers to have that experience. You charge them some amount of money. You know where they're going. Your grooming plan stays away from them. I think this is the year because of the demand that somebody's going to try something along those lines and slice off a little chunk of their otherwise downhill mountain. Yeah, yes. Uh, I I wouldn't be that surprised. Um, you know, I also would say resorts are going to have a, a lot of other big challenges. And so creating a, a new operational complexity is maybe not like what they want to do right now. For it's always going to be low on the totem pole comparatively. Yeah. yeah. And like the number of people who are interested in these backcountry light experiences is, is small beans compared to what their core customer looks like. Right. So, you know, they're, they're probably not going to do do that. But I mean, for, as far as an experience that goes, though, like they could, they could create something really spectacular. I do think more monetization and probably slightly better signage is stuff we can definitely anticipate beyond that. Who knows? Let's kick this to the next stuff. So year two, basically to the public started a week or two ago, you guys really kicked off with a bang, new location, new products. Um, you know that there's increased demand based on what we're seeing on the retail side and probably what's happening in your in your email boxes. What does year two success look like for you? Um, are you going to have to shut off selling season passes just like the resorts do because of people want the product? Yeah. Uh, so success for us is having full days, right? Like we're capping the mountain at 200 guests, partly to make sure the experience is super quality. For everybody and partly because there's literally just like a, a road cap requirement for us we 
uh, I was going to ask how many cars in. can you park? Yeah, well, actually, the the parking this year will be mega. We have tons of room. Um, it's going to be a great place to to just park right next to the slopes, and then we're going to allow camping. Right, you added camping. I saw that. So the parking zone will be awesome. Uh, no worries there. It's literally like the Department of Transportation turn requirements. But like that's around the number that we would want to cap it at anyway for people to have just like a really great experience and a socially distanced experience, et cetera. So uh, success looks like, you know, we're hitting our caps on those days. If you'd asked me a couple weeks ago, I, I would have said maybe a little less than that. But yeah, our season passes, we've, we're only allowing 500 passes uh, that will be reservationless. So you can come whenever you want. And those passes are mostly gone. So they've yeah. been on sale for, as of this recording, like a week, right? N not even a week. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you're going to have season passes. You're going to have day passes. You're increasing your, um, clinics and educational opportunities. There's camping. I would assume more food options, things like that similar rental fleet. Um, I think I looked at the map and saw, as you mentioned, different aspects. Um, now there's like two perches instead of one perch, right? You've got base lodge and then upper high camps a little bit further from Denver, but you know, that 45% more snow little tidbit that pans out that should do a lot for you. Yeah. It, the quality of the snow will be better. It'll allow us to have a full season. Whereas we would only have a partial season at the old location. Well, and the word season last year, 14, 15 days, you're shooting for how long this year? Yeah, we're, our goal is 69 days, which is Thursdays through Mondays. So five days a week that allows us to hire a crew five days a week, right? Like, a, um, and we mostly ran off volunteers last year. So we'll have a paid staff this year beyond just ski patrol. What does that look like? So you went from volunteers to staff, you're creating jobs here. Like how many? We'll have about 20 positions open and some of those are part-time seasonal, some of them are full-time seasonal, and some of them actually will like bleed over into the off seasons as well. So we're actually, I literally built the page last night. We're going to have the jobs up pretty soon here and we're excited to find other people who are, who believe in what we're trying to create and who are excited to make it come to life. And we've just had this amazing volunteer squad that's we, without them, we couldn't have, we couldn't have gotten here. They've been so helpful and to now like integrate some paid positions into that culture is going to be really fun and probably challenging as well. One thing I've seen since the announcement, um, people asking a about jobs, which you just mentioned and B the, ongoing, never-ending conversation with uphill and backcountry dogs. How are you handling the dogs question last year to, or going forward to this year? Yeah. So last year we did not allow dogs. Uh, we had enough challenges to work through, uh, to figure out how to run this thing efficiently, how to run it intelligently and, and safely, and to make sure our guests were having a good time and a safe time. So, um, we did not allow dogs. We're investigating what to do about that this year. And it's one of our top questions, right? Cause like there's some people who just, that's what they want. They want to go ski with their dog and they can't take their dog to the resort. So can, can they take it to bluebird? And the answer is, I don't know yet, but we're having really healthy conversations around this. 
And by the time people are listening to this, we'll probably have a policy up on the website. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the bars, the outside beer gardens, what they do, I think you've seen is no dogs on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, but you can have dogs on like Mondays and Thursdays during, during the slower periods, you're allowed to bring dogs. And on the high periods, you're not allowed to bring dogs, um, might help to, uh, send some demand to your Thursday when you're Friday, Saturday, if you have one day a week, dog day, um, no idea if that's a good or bad plan, but I'm sure it's something you're kicking around. There's yeah, there's a lot of ideas on the table. That's one of them. Also having dog designated zones, like the, the area is so big. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Dog yeah, zone. Maybe we could have That'd a That'd be a funny zone. thing on the trail, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, you know, there's a good set of people who are just not into having dogs. And so we need to be sensitive to that experience and, and to make sure people have the right kind of equipment if their dog does get injured. Part of this is good backcountry habits too. So uh, well-trained dogs, great. Not so well-trained dogs, not like great in the backcountry and also not great for our guests. <laughs> right. And you as an operator, you don't know which one's coming. Both yeah, are coming. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's get a few audience questions here before we get to some more fun stuff towards the end. Paul... 610 question about uh, any rescues last year. Did you actually have to do any serious ski patrolling? Yeah. So our ski patrol uh, does not use explosives. We are managing um, avalanche terrain with guide techniques like ski cutting, et cetera, and opening and closing terrain. And like they're very familiar with the zone and with the snow. And so uh, they, those guys did a great job last year. They're incredibly experienced. They've got, um, a, over 30 years of experience working together and patrolling at Silverton and running Tellurides, um, snow safety and all that. So it's probably not a ski patrol though, that would use a traditional toboggan that you would see at a ski resort, right. To get somebody down off the hill. Oh no, we had toboggans. We had, uh, you know, obviously everything's human powered at Bluebird, but right. We had two snow machines to facilitate any kind of rescue scenarios. And we had lots of um, situations where either, you know, uh, where we needed to use those either to get up on the mountain and help someone out or, uh, you know, bring someone back down to the base. You know, we had 1,100 guests do the math, right? People get hurt. So we had three basically like, people sprain their knees um, and things like that. But, you know, they'd be in a real tough spot if they were up on that mountain without ski patrol. Uh, And And you must have just equipment failure. Someone needs help with that. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff that's going on. And so part of our goal is to facilitate like your ability to go try and learn and build your skills and experiment in a place that is a little more comfortable and where there is ski patrol on call ready to help when you need help. Another one from M stars 11, um, rationale between the kind of public terrain versus the guide only terrain when someone looks at map. Okay, sure. Yeah. And so we, you know, the core, our bread and butter is, and what makes us different is that we have inbounds backcountry is what we call it. Right? Like this means there is a boundary within that boundary. We have ski patrol, they're monitoring the snow and the terrain, they're opening and closing that terrain, and they're also just there to be helpful. Uh, we only allow people to go skiing inside of that inbounds backcountry zone, uh, unless you are with a bluebird guide 
or you're on an airy course with Bluebird, et cetera. So uh, we focus on that 1,200 acres of inbounds backcountry, but there is another 3,000 acres this year that will be out of bounds. There's an entire other mountain called Diamond Mountain that looks to have some really incredible Aspen skiing if uh, it's most like south and west facing. So only certain days might be good for it, but I'm excited to go over there and check that out. And then there's some quite steep terrain that we left out of the inbounds as well that um, may be great for some guided skiing, uh, things like that. So I mean, it sounds like a lot of it is just, it takes X amount of patrol to cover 1200 acres and trying to cover 4,000 would just be ridiculous. Yeah. And not necessary at this point. Exactly. The 1,200 <laughs> acres is going to be plenty. Like there's freshies to be had. <laughs> Whenever you want freshies, you can go find some. And let's see here. Serena Diore, um, she's talked about how did you secure the location? You kind of already talked about that. Um, happenstance from somebody in your volunteer network saying, I know a guy, let's talk to him kind of thing. It seems like a lot of ranch land. So it's kind of, that's what it ended up being, right? Uh, somebody from the Backcountry Facebook group named Joe said, any good cliff drops on the new place? <laughs> yeah, so this year we have quite a bit more steeper terrain than we had last year. And we're still exploring it. Like We did some scouting of this mountain last year, but not extensively. It's huge. And we were focused on obviously running operations on Whiteley. So there's a lot for us um, to explore once we get access to the property. So we actually don't have access right now. It's hunting season there. They run guided hunting operations on the ranch. And by the way, if you want to go check out Bluebird, don't yet. It's private property. <laughs> Google Earth only people. Yeah, please. Um respect the landowner and respect the fact that like we're only able to use that land because we have a good relationship with the landowner. So, um, stay off the property until opening day. Uh, but yeah, so I imagine there's some cliff drops here and there, but I, I couldn't tell you where they are yet. Um, come out and come out and find them. Yeah. Come out and find them. Is this a product, whether with your group or somebody else, that could exist in other places? What are the things you need? How far do you need to be from a city? Um, what are the right types of cities? Could this be recreated anywhere else? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the way that we look at this is that the model is like the combination of a ski area and a guide service. Right. And the reality is that for uh, a ski area, you need proximity to skiers. You need really great terrain. You need really great snow. And that's not easy to find. Like the, a lot of the good ones are already ski areas, or it's very difficult to find either private land or to go through the forest service permitting process. We are hopefully solving a number of problems, right? Like there's barriers to entry that are high. We want to reduce those and create better access. There's this big gap between an AVI Awareness Night and an AVI One. And we believe there can and should be a facilitated way to move through that so that you're ready mentally and physically 
to take an avalanche course to take your avi one like there's a lot you can learn about your gear about movement etc um and then like right now people often take their avi one they check the box and then they think they're good to go but there really should be a uh, continuing education. You should continue to be learning every year. You should make sure you refresh your skills every fall. And then you should be practicing and building your skill set every year, right? Like create, you know, build on that foundation um, and don't let the foundation disintegrate. So we, we believe and hope that Bluebird can be a place uh, to solve for uh, the access thing piece, the educational piece, and then providing a more social, soulful way for the community to gather, like a place for people to come and meet others. And those challenges that we believe Bluebird can solve, like those are challenges that don't just exist in Colorado. Right, it's those, not unique to here. Those are challenges that people are looking, people are curious about backcountry skiing, especially this year. And so uh, this Hopefully, we're solving a challenge that is uh, really helpful here where we have an incredibly dangerous snowpack, right. uh, but also that uh, we believe this is something that could be solved elsewhere, too. Some fun stuff to end us up here. So you live in Golden. This is currently, I did the, the miles, 122 miles to Muddy Pass. Mm-hmm. H- how much do you have to drive back and forth during this season? <laughs> <laughs> or do you like camp out there? No, How I'll are you going to handle that? I'll be up in the mountains. So this past year, we were up in Kremlin. We were living in Kremlin. That's probably quasi-affordable, actually. You know, it's more expensive than I would have guessed, for sure. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and there's very limited inventory up there. Yeah. Yep. So you have a bit of a Kremlin home base to keep you from having to do the haul all the time. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, the ski patrol and Jeff and I, and, and uh, we all live together, and then we would host volunteers and whatnot but we you know we're still working through what our home base is going to look like there are some cabins that are right near the parking that we may use for employee housing but not for guests but we'll have the camping option for people and that'll make that drive for guests so much better to come and have a, a full experience not just because you don't have to turn around and drive home but also because like Man, there's going to be just some good times in the Bluebird lot, right? Like, Are last- you going to be allowed to have like a communal fire pit? Have you checked that box yet to figure out if you're allowed to do that? I mean, we've got a 30-page COVID plan and the highlights are on our website and everything. And we're we're going to treat this really seriously. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, like we are going to try to create the most enjoyable environment for people to have like a great time on on the mountain and a safe time on the mountain and a great time and a safe time in the in the parking well you guys have built this from the ground up and you learned about it last year you're going to learn about it this year porta potties the entire (laughs) ski industry is about to ask their guests to use the porta johns while they're skiing you got experience with that last year is there any wisdom you can impart uh, either on the skiers or the ski resort operators for what to expect for wintertime porta potties. <laughs> I haven't been asked this question, but I like it. <laughs> um, you know that blue stuff in there? Does yeah, it that, freeze? <laughs> it works really well. It, does, it didn't freeze at all on us, and we got down to negative 20 or below that last season. So that's good news. Um, what does freeze is the groover we have up at the uh, <laughs> up at the perch. 
So the on mountain um, toilet that was more impromptu, that thing uh, definitely froze, and I learned the hard way on that one. Was that a pit toilet, like, or was that not a porta potty? Like, what you guys? It was literally. I mean, it was comfortable, but it was just, and it was a groover like you'd have on a river trip, like an ammo can with a seat on it. But I guess, you know, the humans will get used to anything, right? That's the lesson. If you got to use those things, they'll get used to it and they'll use them. The kind of person that comes to Bluebird Backcountry is is all about using the groover. <laughs> yeah, no, you have a good uh, alignment between guest attitude and willingness to do what they got to do in nature, probably compared to uh, maybe a Vail Resort. And it sure beats um, what you have in the true backcountry snowballs that's right that's what that's what i did that a few times last year there's a little bit of uh arapaho national forest apologies snowball <laughs> events of myself last and depending winter. on how it it uh how the facets are down there like it could be a it's not always an enjoyable experience oh that's true having avi one and understanding <laughs> the snow layers will help you with finding the right snow facets to use if you oh man that goes very deep down that rabbit hole um in a perfect world you know what will you be doing with this in five years oh man i mean we saw so many people have the best day of their winter and so my hope is that we can have you know as many people as possible have the best day of their winter hands down um so that's our hope is that we can continue to evolve this idea. We make leaps and bounds every year. And so uh, I'm real glad to have a tenacious business partner um, who cares about this as much as I do and, and a great team to support it. And so we're just going to keep working on it as hard as we can to give people a good time and, uh, you know, make Bluebird as extraordinary as it can be, wherever that is, wherever, you know, whatever kind of new evolutions we see in what we provide, like in bounds or with the experience, like we're just excited to make this thing better and to bring a different flavor to the ski industry period. And if your season passes sell out, the next best product people will be able to get will be what? Yeah, I'm literally working on that right now. Uh, we will... We anticipate having four packs. With those four packs, you will need to reserve spots on the mountain. Um, and then I'm tinkering with the idea of having like a more discounted mega pack, like a 10 or a 12 pack. Um, just, yeah, stay tuned on our, our website. We'll always have something, some way to get on the mountain until we're totally, totally full uh, available for sale. But like, right now is the only time that we're going to offer something that, that does not require reservations and those are going pretty fast all right stay tuned bluebirdbackcountry.com correct that's right probably bluebird backcountry on the uh, social media feeds and uh, eric at some point this winter you have to uh let me take you out on my little demo fleet here of my different concept of skiing and it's either it's mostly all in jefferson county but you have to ski on these plastic foot sleds that don't have any edges scales in the bottom uh, i'm i'm looking at them right now and i'm pretty stoked about trying this you don't do a telly turn on the down it's just for the way up you alpine down telly up scales in the bottom it's basically a cross-country ski and a powder ski you had a kid and made those why can't i telly coming down 
You can, but it's uh, it's kind of more fun to just kind of powder rate them. <laughs> um, All right. Well, yeah. I'll report back uh, next year and and let everyone know if it's fun to tell you on them too. Yeah. One of these times when you're stuck in gold and you can't make it up to Kremlin. Okay, man. That sounds right. great. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for letting us uh, christen uh, my garage. Sorry about the uh, car noise, everybody. <laughs> no worries. And it's rant time. Have you lost family members to QAnon bullshit? I know I have a few. Well, the gang at the Reply All podcast found the folks who control the message boards where that junk originates. And guess what? They are running crowdfunding campaigns to, quote, spread the message. And the funds raised are being used to buy ads on their own website. So, yeah. A guy named Jim, who lives in the Philippines, is pocketing the funds of the moron mob that he built. Which, I mean, of course. The episode is called Country of Liars, if you want to hear it or send it to your crazy internet cousin. End of rant. by Adam Levy. Toss me those five-star Apple Podcast ratings if you want to show that you care. Email me, alex at wintrymixcast.com. Make a pitch or if you have an idea. Follow on Instagram at wintrymixcast or find the show on Facebook or Twitter. There's also a COVID versus ski business group that I admin with around 500 not insane people sharing their informed perspectives as we proceed. Leave the pod a voicemail or text at 802-560-5003, and good chance I'll get it into an episode. Stick around for After the Beep. Goodbye. Hey guys, come on in. We'll take a quick break. Happy birthday, one of you. Kaylin is 10. Kaylin oh. turned 7 a couple days ago. Oh, okay. Just got a popsicle party at school. Score. Aw, oh, yeah. This is Eric. Hi. Hi. Hi, person. We're going to finish <laughs> up as soon as you guys get inside. Can I robot? Ro- yeah, we'll do the robot later. You got to take your sister to soccer practice. Hi. I'm not going. <laughs> I'm not going. Okay, bud. <laughs>